welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Eugene Goltz, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame and a Cato Adjunct Scholar. Eugene, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's nice to be here. Way back in 2001, you and Daryl Press published what I think is a classic paper in IR, The Effects of War on Neutral Countries. I think you make uh, two main points in the argument. The first one is that the costs that wars impose on neutral countries are usually exaggerated. And the second is that the costs that the U.S. pays to prevent conflict or intervene in specific wars are higher than the costs associated with neutrality. Can you just tease that thesis out for us a bit? Sure. Um, you know, it's a fairly abstract point, but the main the main argument is um, wars are extremely expensive. Uh, their very rapid consumption of lots of stuff by the belligerents. Um, so if you want to fight a war, that costs a lot. Basically, you're producing a lot of stuff and blowing it up. And you don't get to use it again. You have to then produce more to keep blowing it up. At the same time, you're disrupting your usual production and taking people out of the labor force to send them to the front. And you still need to buy stuff and you still need to get access to making stuff um, in order to, while you're fighting, you have to support everyone's got to eat, uh, everyone, you know, all your normal stuff. Plus now you also need the stuff to fight. And where is it going to come from? And so what you end up doing is um, using up your wealth. Uh, so savings you've made in the past or borrowing against your future earnings, you you give that to neutral countries in exchange for them supplying you with all the things you need to keep fighting and keep living while you fight. So war is excruciatingly expensive for people who fight. But the result is that wealth gets transferred from the belligerents to neutral countries, to countries that are not fighting that still have the opportunity to produce all the stuff that belligerents need. And in reality, there's a complex race a little bit between the disruptive effects, transportation being cut off, blown up, that makes it harder to import stuff from neutral countries, and the increased demand to import stuff from the neutral countries. And so, you know, sometimes wars transfer a lot of wealth to neutrals, and sometimes they transfer a little wealth to neutrals, depending which side of that race is winning. But the overall average net effect is there's disruption of trade with neutrals, but the trade persists. So neutral countries, countries that are not fighting, it, it, wars don't cost them that much. Um, in fact, sometimes they can even benefit, although they don't benefit by enough that, you know, some people say, well, then why don't people try to start wars with uh, that other countries fight? And well, you don't benefit that much. And it's not nice to try to start wars and you get sucked in if you do that. So it's not, this isn't like a way for countries to make money, <laughs> but, um, but it's not so bad if other countries fight each other, as long as you don't get drawn in. And of course, if you try to prevent other countries from fighting, that's one of the things that draws you in. You have to spend a lot of resources to go around extending deterrence or sometimes fighting on behalf of other countries to make a point or to end wars faster, right? Those are things that turn you from being a neutral into being a belligerent. And once you're a belligerent, 
you're spending a lot. Now war is tremendously costly from an economic perspective. And so, you know, kind of the balance between the cost of preventing wars and letting wars happen as long as you stay out of them, you know, from an economic perspective, I think the choice is relatively clear, you know, and then you get into other concerns like, do you have other interests at stake? You know, what's the morally right thing to do in terms of preventing wars? Like wars aren't nice. You want wars not to happen, all else equal. But then you have to make complex trade-offs between the moral questions of other people who want to fight, trying to stop them from fighting at the cost of you potentially making the moral choice to fight yourself. And, you know, that's a big choice to make. How can we sort of put this lens in front of us with respect to the outbreak of war in Ukraine and U.S. policy towards it? How do we, what insights from the paper can apply to that situation? It's a, it's a good question. So there, there were, I think, two aspects. First is, what is the effect of the war in Ukraine on the economy of countries that are not fighting? Or in other ways, how does it affect countries that are not fighting? So if you stay neutral, what effect does it have? And then the second question is, um, are we really neutral um, in this fight? And, and how does that affect the calculus? So you know, when the war broke out, uh, there were a lot of people who worried about economic effects of the war that it would and 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 it has obvious knock-on effects of you know disrupting oil markets or people talked about neon production or uh, Ukraine and and some parts of Russia near there but Ukraine as being a breadbasket of the world in terms of food exports or or uh, edible oils exports um, and that once the war happens these supplies would be disrupted and that could hurt other economies or just hurt people who are dependent on those products. And, you know, that's a reasonable uh, concern. A lot of the actual economic cost of the war, though, um, has not been because the belligerents have wanted not to export or wanted to cut off each other's exports. Um, you know, if you're worried about getting food supplies in the rest of the world, Ukraine is still happy to sell food to the rest of the world because they need the money to fight the war. Russia has engaged in some blockade activities about food, um, but there have been negotiated solutions to that. In other markets, like oil, the Issue has not been that Russia doesn't want to sell oil to the world. Russia wants to sell oil and make money to use it to buy weapons and fight and do whatever. Like they're not trying to cut off the world. It's that the world has taken a side in the in the conflict, or some of the world, the West has taken a side in the conflict and wants to use that to coerce Russia. And so we are willingly paying the cost of hurting ourselves to try to hurt Russia to try to end the war. But we're seeing that that's actually not a particularly effective strategy because the global market is quite flexible. It's hard to coerce countries by blocking their ability to export and make money, even countries that are at war. So, so you know, Russia has continued to export its oil to some countries that are willing to buy it. And that continued export has actually limited 
the cost of the war on the rest of the world, right? So, so if Russia's oil just poof disappeared from global markets and no one could buy it, then there would be a supply shortage and supply and demand would lead to huge price spikes in oil. And some people feared that at the beginning of the war, but that's not what happened. You know, Russia found alternative markets. Those markets then didn't have to purchase oil from other suppliers that they otherwise would have bought from, which freed up oil from non-Russian supplies for the West to buy. It just so effectively the war just changed who was supplying whom, not the total amount of supply and demand in the market. And so it didn't have a long-term catastrophic impact on the oil supply balance, which would have had a cost transmitted to global markets. So the result was not that much cost to neutral countries, except the cost that they are imposing upon themselves by trying to meddle in the conflict. And then there's the other big cost that the West has paid with respect to this war, and especially the United States, which is that we're not really neutral. I mean, we're neutral in the sense that we are not fighting the war. There are no American troops on the ground shooting stuff, blowing it up, getting themselves killed. We haven't you know, started drawing many more people into the American military to mobilize for the fight. Terrific. Um, so we haven't paid the full cost of being a belligerent. But we are giving vast quantities of munitions to Ukraine and, and other equipment too, which they are then taking and consuming. And so we are allowing Ukraine to fight well beyond its means, right? So instead, not just Ukraine is transferring wealth to the rest of the world to buy munitions to pursue its war, Ukraine bearing the cost of the war, the United States especially, but the West more broadly, are giving things to Ukraine to use to fight. So we are choosing to bear the cost of their belligerency. And that extends the war. It leads to you know, lots of people being killed. We can have a conversation about whether that's strategically a good idea or not, whether it's worth it. But that is the main cost of this war for the United States is Oh, we spent $100 billion giving stuff to Ukraine so that they could fight. That's $100 billion of cost to the United States. Right? That's just real money that's gone. You mentioned um, oil markets there. Uh, another classic paper of yours, also with Daryl Press, um, goes back a little less far than 2001. You published it in 2010. It's called Protecting the Prize, Oil and the U.S. National Interest. So to the extent that U.S. foreign policy is postured to protect oil supplies, you say it's based on a misunderstanding about how energy markets work. And you even say that the attempt to protect oil in our foreign policy might be more costly and counterproductive for protecting our interests in this respect uh, than not doing much at all. Um, first, just explain the economic misunderstanding that's happening here, and then you can talk about why these policies are not just ineffective, but counterproductive. Sure. So I guess I sort of laid out some of the logic when I was talking about you know, Russian oil exports uh, in, in Ukraine, connected to the Ukraine war. Um, a standard interpretation economically of the global 
oil market um, is to think of it like a bathtub. There's lots of oil getting pumped out of the ground in multiple sources around the world that are like a whole bunch of faucets spraying oil into a giant pool, a giant bathtub of oil. And um, and each of those faucets can be regulated, turned up and turned down some and how much oil it's spraying in um, to the tub. And then there are a whole bunch of countries that consume oil that each have a little drain at the bottom of the tub. And they turn up and turn down the amount that they're drawing out of the tub. And at any given time, the amount of oil in the tub goes up and down a little bit. It's There's, there's sort of an inventory of oil that fills the tub. But you know, if there's a a disruption in some part of the world that disrupts one of the faucets spraying oil into the tub, well, then other faucets elsewhere in the world open up a little more to compensate. And so they have, and in fact, they have a natural incentive to do that. They make more money by doing that. It's good for them to compensate for the disruption elsewhere in the world. That means that all the consuming countries like most of the time, the United States is, is an, has been an example of this because we produce a lot of oil, but we consume even more. So we have a net drain on the tub. As long as someone's putting oil in the tub, we can still get oil out. And so we're not hurt too much by it. And so the effect of, you know, the effect of a war somewhere that affects an oil producer is actually that oil producer needs money to fight the war. And so they want to open their spigot or their faucet even more to fund their war. And so they're trying to put more war in the tub, but sometimes their ability to do that gets affected by the conflict. And so sometimes it goes down or goes up, right? That's that race I was talking about that applies in the oil case. But you know, the oil market is such that there are some producers that have big faucets and some producers that have small faucets. And there's always a concern that if a big faucet gets cut off, all the other faucets in the world can't compensate enough, can't open up. There's not enough spare capacity for them to open up more. And so it will hurt the ability of consumers to get the oil they need. Um, and what we you know, kind of show in the paper is um, for the very biggest suppliers, that's a problem. So if US production went to zero, we're the biggest producer in the world. If U.S. production went to zero, it'd be very hard to compensate for that. But it's not realistic to think that any country could make U.S. production go to zero. And, and the other really big ones like that are Saudi Arabia and Russia. And no one can make their production go to zero. And it's also very hard for the U.S. military to take any steps to prevent anyone from making their production go to zero from to, to to try to you know marginally reduce the risk um you know really most of the disruptions we're talking about are you know when libya with a little bit of help from the west fell into a black hole and its oil production dropped from a significant amount to very low amounts for a while. And they've, you know, gone up and down as they try to get more oil on. And then the civil war gets worse and more and less oil gets exported. So it bounces around a little bit. But, you know, that's the most common kind of disruption. And a disruption like, you know, the tragic events in Libya in the 2010s, 
didn't actually have that big an effect on global oil markets because there are these compensation mechanisms built into the market. So you don't have to, you know, find a military solution to prevent the collapse of the Libyan oil market or the Venezuelan oil market due to domestic mismanagement strikes. Like some people would say, oh, we desperately need the Venezuelan oil. Well, Venezuelan oil production collapsed. So what do you do? Well, I guess you could imagine conquering Venezuela and fixing their oil production. Holy crap, that would be hard and expensive and crazy talk, right? But we don't need to do that because, yes, Venezuela, their spigot going into the global bathtub has gotten, you know, turned more into drips than a gusher. But other people opened up a little bit and everyone could still get their oil and the oil market just naturally adjusts. So it's not worth paying the costs of militarily trying to fix or protect oil suppliers. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the argument of the paper. And, and I think time and again, I just used the Libya example, but we see it in the Russia-Ukraine example. We see it in, you know, time after time when there are these political military disruptions um, the military is not a good way to compensate. The market is a good way to compensate. Yeah, I don't know the whole entire literature on this, but you know, it seems like that's not terribly controversial. What you've just said, it it, it matches up with what we see in markets uh, throughout history, and when there are uh, disruptions of uh, of oil supply. But if you walk into D.C., you're gonna hear about how. The presence, the military presence that we have in the Middle East, and the posture that we have there, is protecting oil. And if we and if we don't have it there, there'll be some problem with our oil supply or global energy stability or whatever. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the because you wrote a Quincy Institute paper recently, uh, where you basically argue that we should draw down from the Middle East and that. The security threats aren't Militarily. Militarily, yeah. The, the security threats aren't there justifying it, and the military doesn't uh, protect us from oil disruptions. So, but why why hasn't this landed uh, in DC? Well, so the why is a different question. So the, the 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 Quincy paper didn't didn't really answer the why question. It said some people will say it's because we have a a, a military or a national security interest. In this, that we have to do something there to prevent, you know, one country in the Middle East from conquering the rest and, you know, gaining a stranglehold from essentially turning multiple spigots feeding into the global bathtub into one giant spigot where they could manipulate the amount of oil in the bathtub and hurt consuming countries like the United States. And what the Quincy paper does is it assesses you know, is there any plausible near-term or medium-term risk that one contender could dominate, become a regional hegemon in the, in the, in the Middle East um, or the Persian Gulf region and gain control of the spigots in a way that would hurt consumers? And, and it's, it just says militarily, no, there's no reason to believe like it takes a lot for a country to conquer or dominate to use military coercion to dominate other 
even smaller countries, right? Um, so I'm like, we've seen this again, the same kind of dynamics in Russia trying to dominate Ukraine. It's just hard to conquer other countries. And so if you think the risk in the Middle East that justifies US military deployments or commitments is to prevent Iran from conquering the rest of the Middle East and dominating the global oil market or Saudi Arabia from beefing, using all its money to beef up its military and go on a rampage and take control of Kuwait and Iraq and Iran and whatever, dominate, become so powerful to cow the others to follow its, its lead. I mean, the U.S. doesn't have to do anything to prevent that, right? That's not going to happen on its own. Iran doesn't have the military power. Saudi doesn't have the military power. The other countries that could conceivably generate military power in the region, Turkey, Egypt, Israel for that matter, none of them has the power to go on the offense and run the table and dominate the Middle East. And so the U.S. doesn't have to do anything to protect ourselves from our fear. Now, why we're afraid anyway? That was really your question. And the paper doesn't answer that. It doesn't, it, I, you know, I, I've written elsewhere about U.S. defense politics some about, um, you know, it's a mixture of, you know, organizational interests and interest group power. I mean, we have, we have a strange system in the United States where um, we're so used to global dominance and so, and, and, and it feels so good to ourselves to tell us about our essential role in the world and how our leadership is pivotal to making everything work out. Uh, it makes us feel good. And so, and, and there are a set of people like the, the combatant commanders that we assign an American military leader to all the made, all the regions of the world, we assign some American military leader to worry about what the American military should do in that part of the world. Like his job is to think all the time about possibilities for what the U.S. military can do. Like he generates plans. He has a staff. He's always thinking about how could the U.S. military act in this area. And of course, that person has an interest in generating plans, imagining threat scenarios, playing what if, thinking about what we could do. And so we have this sort of self-licking ice cream cone of organizational interest, bureaucratic interest, public interest that, that generally feels good about the U.S. role in the world and doesn't directly associate that role with costs right? Because the connections are very indirect. A lot of it is just planning or borrowing money to write checks to support Ukraine in fighting. So we don't feel the cost. And, and we're also a rich place. So even if it's costly, you know, a, a, a friend of mine, Ben Friedman, has talked about this as, as, you know, America plans for security like rich people shop. Right. They they don't think too much about the costs of what they're doing. It's like, hey, we want to do this. And so they just do it. And, you know, if we thought more carefully or if we had something to counterbalance the interests, the particular groups that benefit, you know, we might start to see the logic a little differently. But, you know, where we are, we just yeah, it's it, it might be foolish, but 
you know, if you want to light your cigars by burning $100 bills, okay, you know, that's what we do. I want to <laughs> I want to move uh, to U.S. policy in East Asia. Um, in a Washington Quarterly piece, you and some co-authors argued that actually one of them, yeah, including Ben Friedman, uh, that the U.S. should shift to a defensive defense and uh, no longer plan to defend its Asian allies with offensive measures. Can you tease that out for us a bit? Maybe you can first tell us what our current offensively defense uh, approach is and why that's problematic and what your alternative approach is. Sure. I mean, the core idea of defensive defense is to align our military operational concepts with our strategic goals and commitments. So the United States says over and over again, and I think most Americans believe that our strategic goals in the world are defensive, that we want to maintain the current liberal order in the world. I don't know, most Americans probably don't have a very clear view of what that particular phrase means. But, you know, it's not that we're trying to go conquer a lot of other countries and build an, a, a, a formal empire where we make political decisions for faraway people. That's not our goal, right? We're not on the offense. We're trying to prevent other countries that we perceive as offensive from conquering or controlling the politics of what we consider to be free countries or sovereign countries right now. So we're on the strategic defensive. But the way our military plans to fight to preserve the status quo distribution of political power in the world often is offensive rather than defensive. So we have an offensive defense. Our goals are defensive, but the mechanism whereby we would bring that about is we try to maintain the military capability effectively to launch strikes against every other country in the world at any time of our choosing and convenience. Right. So we think somebody's acting up. We want to be able to punish them. And so we posture our military at great expense. It's hard to reach out and smack people. It's expensive. Not just fighting war is expensive, but it's especially expensive if you're on the offense. If you're going to play away games all the time, you're going to go to their home territory where they know more about what the territory and the local conditions are, where they have prepared defenses and know the local operating environment, and they have better maps, and they have decoys and camouflage and cover and concealment and all of these advantages of being on their home turf. If you want to maintain at all times the capability to overcome all of those defensive advantages so that you can just smack them and punish them when you think they're acting up, that's hugely costly. Um, but the United States, A, likes the ability to do that. Again, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel in control. It makes us feel like the good guys are the sheriff in town. And um, so we like to pay those costs. And, you know, the military will also make some arguments about advantages that the offense has 
in terms of controlling the pace of operations and you get to choose when and where you fight. And, and you know, they'll make some arguments about that. But those arguments, while they have some merit, are sort of overwhelmed by the arguments about the advantages of the defense and the advantages of the defense. So there are classic arguments for the advantage of the defense. So like Clausewitz, one of the greatest thinkers about how wars happen, you know, clearly and firmly believes that the defense is the stronger form of war. But even more so in the current world, the trajectory of technology in the world is making it especially easier to defend against attack, at, at, especially at the borders between different um, kinds of domains. So where, where water meets land, where land meets air. So if you're protecting status quo territory at a border where there's a moat between you and the other side, so between Taiwan or Japan or the Philippines and China, where for China wanted to go on the offense, they would have to cross the moat and then come on to land at, the, at their potential victims' uh, uh, territory. Um, technology makes it easier to find and kill the aggressor as it crosses the water and tries to come onto the land, much easier to accomplish that mission than the reverse mission, which is the aggressor trying to kill the defenders on land from the relatively exposed sea or air. And why so, does, uh, if I can interrupt quickly, if that's why do policymakers see China's investment in those very technologies as the threat which justifies our continued offensive posture there? Uh, it's a good. It's a good question. So, um, China um, started investing a lot in their military roughly twenty-five years ago, right? The as their economy has grown over the last forty years, at the beginning they invested less in their military than most other countries of their level of wealth. And then 25 years ago, they started ramping up to sort of catch up to the normal level, or now they spend you know, less than the United States as a percentage of GDP, but you know, they spend more than they used to as a percentage of their wealth or of their income on, on the military. And primarily in the first phase of that ramp up, they invested precisely in what we call anti-access area denial capabilities. The, the very capabilities that make it hard to come from the sea onto the land or from the air onto the land. And that was precisely because they were afraid of the U.S. capability and proclivity to go smack other countries, to, to maintain our dominance, our ability to to strike any country anytime we felt like it to punish them in the rest of the world. And China didn't want the United States to be able to punish them. And so they've been trying to make it hard. And the United States has defined that as aggressive, right? Any country that doesn't want the Americans to have the ability to smack them, well, they're aggressing against the liberal order because the liberal order is defined by the American ability to smack whoever we feel like. And it's a weird definition of aggression. But that's the position the United States government took originally. And then over time, China has progressed. Like they've built up a pretty robust A2AD, anti-access area denial capability that makes it hard for the United States to smack China. And they've started to combine that with 
more capability to try to go across water to smack others or to influence others. And, you know, particularly Taiwan, which they, you know, view as a renegade province of China. And, you know, the diplomatic status of Taiwan is intentionally ambiguous. But so they are now changing to try to get not just in the HUAD business, but to have some limited, at least, offensive capability. And there's dispute whether they want offensive capability to go elsewhere. Plausible. You know, that's a different topic. Um, so they're now facing the same troubles, but they have an easier time in a way going on the offense because we pursue an offensive defense. If we would just do what they did and have a defensive defense focusing on our own technology friendly HUAD, like going with the trajectory of technology to invest in HUAD capabilities, we could make it really hard for them to go on the offense, to adopt an offensive I mean, they might have an offensive offense strategy. I'm not sure. They might have an offensive defense strategy too now. But we can make that hard for them by doing more defensively on our own side, by us having a defensive defense. But, but at a certain point, as long as we have the offensive defense, that we're thinking the mechanism of protecting Taiwan is that we need the ability to strike and punish China's mainland. When they develop a defensive defense that makes it hard for us to go on the offense, the, Chi the Chinese talk about this as a counter-intervention strategy, right? They're trying to make it costly for the United States to intervene in what they view as a Chinese civil war, not an, in, not an internal war, not a war of conquest. And um, we view that if they make it hard for us to intervene on behalf of our friend Taiwan, we view that as aiding China's ability to go on the offense against Taiwan. And so that's why there's this conflict in how people think about what China is doing. You know, you can sort of cut through all of that conflict and we can better aid our friend Taiwan and also not get ourselves in such a difficult situation strategically, such a costly and risky situation strategically, if we would just switch to a defensive defense and stop thinking that the best way to defend our friends is to go on the offense. If we would just think the best way to defend our defense is to def our friends is to defend them, that's a lot cheaper and safer. I mean, let's do that. China is leading to a, a kind of a new emboldened era of thinking about economic statecraft. Um, and the United States does a lot of economic sanctions. And to start out with, uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about this, but with uh, Llewellyn Hughes, you've argued that the targets of economic sanctions often have ways through market structures to minimize the costs that sanctions are intended to impose. And, and you choose the case of China's 2010 embargo of rare earth elements supplied to Japan. What happened in that case? Uh, what, what does it show? Sure. Um, so, I mean, again, you can see the connection between this and the earlier conversations we were having about the effect of war on neutrals or, or the global oil bathtub. Um, this is another way of thinking about the flexibility of markets to kind of get out from potential harms um, uh, that one country tries to impose on another. Um, and economic sanctions are an example of a, of a potential harm. You're trying to 
to threaten or even punish another country's behavior economically to make them stop doing something. And um, and Llewellyn and I were pointing out um, that's actually quite hard to do because markets adjust. And there are certain market structures that make it appear that adjustment might be difficult, that it might be hard to get out from under your adversary's economic cudgel. And, um, and so we wanted to look at a situation where it seemed particularly auspicious for the sanctioner to hurt the target um, because of the market structure and the alleged difficulty of adjustment to get out from under the economic harm. And, um, and that a case that we looked at, which seems like a very extreme case of vulnerability to sanctions, difficulty of getting out from under the sanctions by adjustment, was Japan's dependence on rare earth element imports from China, where this was a case that China was, was acknowledged as a dominant supplier kind of at the time you know, China was mining, depending on the particular element, rare earth elements is actually 17 different elements on the periodic table. So it's, it's a jumble. But depending on the, basically in all the elements, China was dominant, like 90% plus of supply was mined in China, was processed. There were limited processing capabilities outside of China. And it was also the case that by far the largest buyer was Japan, because the particular things rare earths were used for, at least some rare earths were used for, were things that happened to be concentrated, the, the intellectual property, the ability to make fancy magnets, advanced medical imaging technologies, some lasers, a set of different products that use, that are dependent on rare earths, were concentrated in Japan. So it was like almost the perfect economic sanctions mechanism where one country controlled the supply, and if they disrupted the supply, they were really only going to hurt their target. There weren't lots of other countries that would be caught in the crossfire or lots of other countries that might have had material on hand that they could resell to the target market to, to lead to adjustment because, you know, Japan could kind of bid away the remaining rare earths from other countries that were also using rare earths. It looked like an ideal case for economic sanctions to work, but it didn't turn out that way. It turned out people were using rare earths in very inefficient means because they were so cheap before the sanctions episode. And so, you know, they found out you could make a fancy magnet by dumping a whole bunch of rare earths into the mix, but nobody really had tried to figure out, well, exactly how much do you need? And as people started to worry about China cutting off rare earth supplies to Japan, well, they started to think about, well, how much do we really need? And it turned out not that much. And so the episode, and there were lots of things like this in different uses of rare earths, where people sort of innovated around, thought of ways not to substitute for rare earths, because rare earths are sort of like magical fairy dust. They make lots of modern processes work great, and they don't have good substitutes. But you can find ways to use less of them, or you can get rid of sort of non-essential uses of the rare earths. So um, I don't know, where do rare earth magnets show up? Well, they show up in lots of important places. They show up in the, in the guidance systems of missiles, right? 
everyone says, oh, that's a critical use. But that turns out to be a very small percentage of the total amount of rare earths get used for that purpose. That's an essential use. But they also show up in little magnets that you can buy on Etsy for craft projects at home, right? So, you know, they're important for people who want to engage in the hobby of making a purse with a fancy clasp or or in a in a visor for a golf hat or whatever. Like, sure, rare earths are cool for that as long as rare earths are cheap. But if somebody tries to manipulate the market for political goals, you don't really need a rare earth magnet for a golf hat. And so you just stop doing that and you use the remaining rare earth supply for the things that are really important. And oh, by the way, it turns out other people can make rare earths too. And so US supplies started expanding and Australian supplies started expanding. And, and just the market adjusted, even in this idealized case. And it's just an example of how hard sanctions are to make them really bite against other countries, even in times when it looks like they really should work. And so you sort of have the same thing going on with sanctions against Russia. You know, the Russian economy is not doing great. It's not, it's not great news when people put sanctions against you, but it doesn't lead to collapse either. And so it doesn't force you to make difficult political changes, right? So China could not force Japan to give up its claims to these disputed islands in, you know, the Senkaku Daioyu Islands by this economic sanction. It just, it just was not effective. So this is it reminds me of the oil thing a little bit. How oil markets work. It's you're, it's not controversial what you're saying. My understanding of the of the literature on economic sanctions is that they're not very effective. Um, they continue to be used politically um, very frequently. And to borrow from the title of a Cato paper from a few years ago, it's uh, they're they're ineffective policy tools, but they're politically convenient. They're good for politicians to be able to to pull out. Um, and I don't know how to get around that other than to somehow depoliticize sanctions use. But it seems to me that the use of sanctions increases in proportion to the mounting evidence of their ineffectiveness as a policy tool. And, you know, some critics suggest that the U.S. has begun to kind of hasten the end of the dollar's dominance as reserve currency. Uh, and at the same time, there are questions about to what extent we should decouple uh, with China's economy. Can you, what, what, what do you think the policy community needs to hear on this score? Well, I mean, so there's a lot in your question. I mean, so the ineffectiveness of sanctions, I mean, they're politically nice because they're something that it feels like you're doing something, right? You can announce them and you can control your own market prices like you can use. Whereas, you know, using the military to influence another country, you have to go over there and smack them. That's hard. Using economic sanctions, well, the companies that are exporting that you're trying to disrupt their exports, they're right here at home. And so you don't have to reach out. It's, it's, it's an easy policy lever, right? It's very attractive, even if it's not very effective. And so you can see why people do it. Um, because they want to make a point. Um, and I mean, that's not exactly going to change, but you know, the companies whose business is disrupted by the sanctions being put on complain about it. We have mechanisms for companies to complain and get out of it. I mean, 
the political process is the political process. And, and um, you know, some companies benefit and some companies are hurt. And that's kind of how the dynamics of sanctions politics are, you know, carried out. Um, you know, whether this should lead to a broader decoupling from of the U.S. and Chinese economies, whether the, the growing strategic competition with these, between these countries means, um, you know, we should decouple. Well, I mean, in a sense, the steps towards decoupling so far, like the Trump administration's tariffs on China, I mean, they were a, a big and ineffective economic sanction, right? What, what Trump said is we're going to put big tariffs on to disrupt U.S. imports from China unless China agrees to transform its economy to make it more Western style capitalist, right? So we were trying to coerce political change on an issue that was really important to the Chinese Communist Party by trying to hurt their economy using economic sanctions. And that did hurt the American economy because, you know, who pays for the tariffs? Well, it's U.S. imports, it's U.S. importers, consumers in the United States paying higher prices. Um, and, you know, again, we're rich and, and it's easy to rile Americans up and we're mad at China, uh, you know, rile them up about China. And so we're, you know, we just paid the cost. But these were ineffective. We haven't led to major changes in the Chinese economy, and we're not gonna. Um, so this is a case of ineffective economic sanctions. Whether decoupling, whether actually we don't want China to comply with these sanctions, we just want the United States to buy less stuff from China, um, is another is another question. And you know, in general, if the United States bought less from China. China still has lots of other markets to sell its stuff to. It would hurt China a little bit, but China can sell stuff to Europe or sell stuff to South America or, you know, wherever else in the world. And so we're not going to hurt China so much, but we're going to hurt American consumers more because we're denying them the ability to buy cheap products. And, you know, we're using up American wealth to hurt them not very much. Um in certain strategic specific areas, you might believe it's irresponsible for the United States to buy stuff from China. So like inputs to specific weapons systems or things that would lead to specific technology transfer to China if we taught them how to make something so we could buy and they make it cheaply so we could buy it from them. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration actually talks about this. They want high fences around a few things, but they want to continue U.S. trade with China. They have a less broad-based approach than the Trump administration had to disrupting economic relations with China. You know, whether they can pull that off is, is uh, sort of unclear politically on both sides of the Pacific, um, but they, they claim to be trying. But, you know, trying to pull off even just the high fences around particular technology items, it's not clear whether that's all that helpful from a national security perspective. Again, it might just be sort of virtue signaling that we don't like China. Um, uh, you know, if our fear is that sometime in a future crisis, if we're buying a, a, an important product, a rare earth element from China that we then use to make an American military product, and we're afraid that that's going to be cut off in the future. If our solution is to cut our access off to it today, I mean, that's just bringing up the problem, which is a potential future problem and making it a certain current problem.
how, what are we going to do if we're cut off? Well, we could cut ourselves off right now and find out, or we could wait to the future and see if the cutoff ever happens. And we could actually take steps in the interim to think about what we would do if that future cutoff ever happened and try to make flexible market adjustments and make it less costly in the future. Like we could, we could take softer steps instead of having a high fence today, we could think about, you know, graceful adjustment over time instead of trying to seek rapid decoupling because we're afraid of potential future leverage, right? You know, uh, even without the government, the government can help encourage this if they want, although it's, it's dangerous a little bit because of the potential for rent seeking and parochial politics. Like you don't want to go too far in that direction. But sure, the government can help some, especially with products where the government is the main buyer, like weapon systems. Um, but, but even without the government, companies themselves have incentives. They make money by the smooth functioning of markets. And if they're afraid of political conflict in the future, disrupting their access to supplies, the companies have an incentive to think about supply diversification, to plan for those scenarios if they think it's likely. And 10 years ago, they didn't think it was likely, but now they think it's plausible. And so they start to think about this and they, you know, market adjustment happens by itself. You, know, you don't have to do anything to insulate yourself. So, so aggressive efforts to decouple are just like, let's pay a cost today for something we're afraid might happen and might actually be less costly if we waited till the future. Yeah. And even beyond those direct market costs, I would have to imagine that a more aggressive decoupling of these two economies would make conflict more likely, not less. Um, but that's we're out of time. So yeah, that's a whole I guess other that's a topic. Discussion for another day. Eugene Goltz, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, uh, you know I I had fun. You know, getting to spout my ideas is you know that's what academics live for. Mm -hmm.